they call it Sunday with Macca. Macca, it's Judy. Hello, Judy. Where are you? I'm in the northeast Victoria, near Wangaratta, and today I'm off packing peaches. And I'd just like to send a cheerio to all the packers and all the pickers. It's an, there's an amazing amount of energy goes into packing the humble peach. Basically, a Sunday is a pressure check day, so I go around, I check all our dump trucks to make sure they're right for tonight's night shift. And I'm looking at about 12 of them at the moment on what we call a go line, and I've got to go around and check them all. There's six tyres in each truck, so there's over the 30, there's you know, 180 80 tyres I've got to go through today, I suppose, it'd be roughly. Mm. And and these ones probably cost around about $23,000 mark. These are sort of cheaper ones. The dearest one we'd have on site is about $43,000 uh, per tyre. But on this truck I'm looking at right in front of me now, it's a, um, it's a 785 dump truck and, and they're worth about $23,000 each. So it's about $120,000 of the tyres on each particular truck. And they're big tyres, aren't they? They certainly are. These ones, um, these are probably a little bit smaller on this, these trucks. They're probably about nine to ten foot tall. Um, these ones, but you get a lot bigger. That you know, right, twelve to fourteen foot tall. And same with these dump trucks. You know, they're they're six meters up to the up to the top of the to the cabs uh, from the ground high. So I mean, they are they are quite big. But when you work with them all the time, you, you sort of tend to get used to it. Get used to it, and you, and you drive past. And you're only halfway up to his tyres when you're driving past him when he's coming the other way. And uh, as I said, I, was, I stood on the back of my truck and my phone went off because someone sent me a text. And I thought, oh, I might give Macca a call because I always have a listen to you. And uh, got converted by an old fella here by the name of Chester, who's a boiler maker. He said, you should listen to this Macca guy. And I said, right, I'll give it a listen to you. And uh, I've been listening ever since. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. They do. It's a story. Bit of weather around kids. Good morning. Get on with it, Macca. Yeah, a bit of weather around, earthquake in the west near Marble Bar and uh, rain and flooding rains really in uh, parts of, well, not not yet, but it's shaping up that way in New South Wales and uh, parts of Queensland and out in the Paru, I think in the Paru, I think we mentioned Paru and our Why I Live Where I Live this week. I've got a letter about that, but a letter from another time. And in Victoria, of course, around Gippsland. Water around, water on the road. Who did that song, Water on the Road? Um, the slide player. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Good morning and welcome wherever you are. HMAS Canberra returned home yesterday. Um, they were taking part, I think, uh, in Talisman Sabre in July and Global Exercise and Bersama Gold, but... Um, that included, they were in a task force, included ships like Anzac and Sirius. Uh, our number this morning, 1300 700 Give us a ring, makertracks at gmail.com. Jeff Stein says, Ian, another sad story is that Yorongabili Caves was vandalised in Kosciuszko National Park. I don't know, he doesn't say when this was. Stalactites and stalagmites in an ancient New South Wales cave system have allegedly been damaged with police launching an investigation. Uh, as stalactites and straws uh, within the cave are naturally formed, the damage is irreversible. Some parts of the Yorongabili cave system are more than 400 million years old, with the Gillibenan cave dating back to 2 million years, according to the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife. Well, surely there'll be cameras around on that road that leads there and they should be able to identify cars and that way. Alan Cox says, Ian, I've coined a new phrase, the five percenters, the 5% of the workforce who don't want to work. We've been looking for office staff and cabinet making and timber joiners for 18 months. We hear there is 5% unemployment and I believe they will never get a job living in a privileged society. Keep up the great work as a sounding board for Australia, says Alan Cox. Thank you, Alan. And on the same theme, really, from Pam Cupper, Pam says, I thought someone else might have contacted you about nil. That's in Victoria. It's poppy display. I've attached a newspaper article and Phil and I went over the other day to see them. Nil's really interesting. The Main Street has preserved a lot of its history there for everyone to see. And there's a picture of some ladies with a with a big display of poppies. It was the same in Grenfell, wasn't it, Kel? They had the lovely poppy display and that's lovely to see. Trust uh, everything's going well, says Pam. Um, you'll be moving out into the real world. <laughs> no doubt. That means we'll get travelling again. 
Australia doesn't seem to have learned that much from the last 20 months. All I hear is now is about how Melbourne's CBD needs more people. Contrast to 2019 when all we heard was that how Melbourne's CBD was too full. I reckon we've lived fairly well without population increases, consumerism per China imports and a bit less travel. I've been thinking about your stories about how hard it is to get Australians to work. It always reminds me of my father, circa the 60s. Every year he'd sit down at the kitchen table and compose his advertisement to send to the Adelaide papers seeking pickers. For grapes mostly in Sunraysia. He'd give all the details and then say to us kids, I'd like to add, Australians need not apply, but I'm not allowed. He found migrants were great workers, but Australians were work shy. Of course, migrants to any country, by definition, are more prepared to work. In London, you only had to open your mouth, says Pam, and speak strine, and you'd be offered a job. But the other things I reflected on re-worker <laughs> worker shortages. Of course, I'm a professional, worked for 40 years in teaching, but the jobs I remember are the often the unskilled and lowly jobs, like picking, etc., as a friend from those days used to say, it's good to look forward to be able to look back on this. And it is. You're, they're the things you remember. Like the train trip. We talked about the train trip. And it was packed and crowded. And and then um, Lorna played the bagpipes and everyone started singing. They're the things you remember, the things that are a bit edgy and a bit, you know, not all it seems to be, but you look back on them fondly. It's good to, isn't it nice? It's good to look forward to be able to look back on this. The experience of those jobs taken while you were training or travelling stays with you. That's where you get the laughs, the camaraderie, the great memories. I reckon I have just as many funny, sad memories from intermittent, part-time, unskilled jobs as I have from 40 years in the classroom. <sighs> Says Pam Cover. Look, our number, did I give you the number? 1300 700 Love to talk to you. G'day, this is Macca. G'day, Maka. It's uh, Brian Yeo from Sydney, from HMO Sydney Association. How are you doing? Oh, g'day, Brian. Yeah, good. Yeah, just a, a quick call. Um, it's that time of year for the um, to remember the uh, the loss of HMO Sydney too in the uh, the battle off uh, Western Australia with the Cormoran on uh, the nineteenth of November, nineteen forty one. Uh huh. And I suppose there'll be commemorations around around Australia. Uh, certainly, in yes. Sydney has one, and certainly they'll have one in in Geraldton, won't they? Probably in Perth as well. Well, yeah. In fact, um, it's on on the, on on Friday, the nineteenth, and uh, we will have our. In fact, it's the 80th anniversary um, of, of the sinking, which is a fairly important milestone. And it is time to to sort of reflect on the the loss of the 645 uh, sailors and uh, airmen on that day uh, in Sydney too. Um, we'll have our normal uh, wreath laying and memorial service uh, at the cenotaph starting at 11 o'clock. Um, with uh, the usual sort of uh, dignities there to lay wreaths, and the Navy band will be there, and the Navy will supply the guard and the um, and the catafold party. Um, and the sailors this year will be from HMO Sydney Five, the newest of the uh, ships named Sydney to be in the Navy, the, uh, the new air warfare destroyer, which has just come back from uh, its first deployment to the US and to uh, Hawaii. So that'll be here at eleven o'clock. That starts in. Uh, Martin Place, mm-hmm. so it's a it's a public place, so people can sort of attend that in this in the circumstances that we have now. There will be one in Melbourne. Um, I, I think it's eleven o'clock at the uh, War Memorial there, and there'll be one in Perth at Geraldton, uh, which probably won't be as big as it would have been, being the 80th, because of the restrictions about people being able to get into Western Australia at the moment. Mm. A lot of, but some some of our some of our descendants who were trying to get there to be part of that ceremony uh, will be in Sydney. Um, the Geraldton one, I think, uh, is at uh, about uh, two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Geraldton time. But there'll also, more importantly, also be a fairly large one this year at um, the War Memorial in Canberra to mark the, the 80th anniversary. Um, Chief of Navy will be there. And uh, in fact, our catafold party from uh, ceremony in Sydney, as that finishes, will be in a bus with the new commanding officer of HMO Sydney 5 and um, head down to the Canberra and that starts at it's it starts at five o'clock in the it, afternoon it's quite chastening if you like to to think about it isn't it I mean we, we're living with COVID at the moment and you know, we all know you know how that's v- affected various states and and I just go back to 1939 to 1945 six years and 
you know, the news of this comes through. Oh, look, by the way, 600 people have just been killed, um, disappeared. Sailors from all over Australia, they from from everywhere uh, on the on the Sydney, and that just kept going on. Uh, and as well as that, people, you know, coming, you know, going on the Burma Railway and dying, and you know, thousands of of Australians lost. And it, while that was happening, Australians are living without, you know, on food things, no petrol, you can't drive, things are really tough. They've got to black out their windows, all those, depending where they live, uh, you know, Darwin's being bombed. I mean, it sort of gives you a perspective about what's happening now and what people in 1945 had to put up with, uh, not in, you know, in the, in the 40s. Well, that's that's true too. And I mean, this the loss of Sydney came as a huge shock to the um, to the population at the sure. time. Uh, it, um, it, it, it had um, been in the Mediterranean for a year or so in 1940 and it sunk the Bolitano uh, Cogliani, um, the first or the second ship-to-ship battle an Australian, um, an Australian ship had, uh, had won and sunk uh, the enemy. And that was actually the second time for a ship named Sydney because it had also happened uh, in, in, uh, in 1914 when Sydney once sunk the Emden off uh, Cocos Island. So uh, it was... Um, when Sydney returned to Sydney uh, town in 1940, um, it was a huge welcome. The freedom of the city was given to the ship. Um, thousands of people lined the lined George Street to uh, see the, the crew and uh, Captain Collins uh, and his crew uh, march up uh, George Street in the city. So when it, uh, less than a year later, um, news finally filtered through that the ship had been lost um, and it didn't, hadn't, Apparently, been any survivors. It was a huge, uh, unbelievable, huge... unbelievable, yeah. and it wasn't handled that well by the by the navy, by the government at the time. There was sort of leaked um, information that had come out, and then suddenly um, ships start to pick up survivors of the Cormoran because there were three hundred and seventeen survivors there. They only lost, well, they say only they they lost ninety seven of their crew, uh, and then uh, suddenly um, ships start to find uh, survivors of the of this German raider off the coast and. Um, more importantly, then nobody found anybody from HMO Sydney. And uh, it wasn't until uh, 2008 when we finally uh, uh, had uh, David Means and his team, uh, uh, funded by Navy and the government and public subscription, actually uh, found the, the wreck of the Cormoran and the Sydney uh, in about 2,500 metres of water um, off the coast. So that was the first, uh, the first concrete bit of evidence that the ship had sunk and where it had sunk. Yeah, earlier this morning I replayed a a piece about the AE-1, which is the submarine which disappeared, which had been disappeared for many years in the First World War, but was found, I think, in 2017 um, off the coast of New Britain somewhere, I think. And, um, yeah, we're always interested in our naval history, and that was uh, submarines, of course, are in the news. And um, I was just interested that the AE one was one of the first. Uh, it was the infant days, wasn't it? In nineteen fourteen, the infant days of submarines, dangerous things. Well, they, they, well I think they probably still are. <laughs> yeah, seem to be, yeah. But certainly, but certainly, if you, uh, I think it went was went off in nineteen fourteen, went off to New Guinea, um, because it was German New Guinea then, I think, and it went off to New Guinea and then disappeared and. Uh, Yes. They... Well, another another little bit of information. Another little. I mean, Sydney One was was went to Rabaul into in nineteen fourteen um, with the first uh, naval fleet of the Royal Australian Navy, and they captured Rabaul. Um, and at that time, the first the first person, well, first Australian certainly sailor, was certainly a member of the AAF to be killed in the war, was a Sydney sailor. Who was in the shore party at, uh, when they took the um, the radio station, uh, the cable station at uh, at Rabaul. and Sydney One did, and some of that fleet conduct some sort of or some so, some small search for AE One, um, but they didn't really know where to look, and uh, nothing ever came of that search. And again, as you say, it was not until 2017, which um, uh, the ship, the, the submarine was found. So it's, it's um, Sydney's ships named Sydney have sort of been interwoven through the navy since uh, the inception in two thousand. Sorry, in nineteen fourteen, and uh, those um, that that sort of tradition continues today. With uh, as I said in the beginning, with uh, the commissioning last year of HMO Sydney Five, 
which again should have been a very joyous occasion and lots of excitement, but again was very low key because of uh, the COVID situation. And in fact, the ship was commissioned just with its own crew um, in attendance in Jarvis Bay uh, last uh, last last year. So uh, it's uh, it's good to have it. It's good to have it back and hopefully a bit of normality because it'll be around for 35 years or so. Yeah. Um, and in the, the tradition of, uh, of of ships named Sydney. Um, being part of the Royal Australian Navy will continue. Brian Yo, uh, commemorations this Friday in various places, Friday the 19th. Uh, nice to talk to you, Brian. Hey, Ian, nice to talk to you and thank you for taking the call. That's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Uh, 1300 you, That's our number. Uh, g'day, this is Macca. Good morning, Macca. My name's Amanda. I'm calling from Gunnada today. How are you? Good, thanks, Amanda. Well, that's good. Macca, I've come out um, to Gunnada to visit my precious little grandsons with my son, and I uh, walked out of the motel this morning and straight across the road there's a phone booth. And I thought of you. <laughs> well, you're not in the phone booth. I am. Oh, you are? Yep, I am, standing in the phone booth. I thought I'd give you a call. My partner and I um, usually listen to you every morning, so I thought I'd give you a call and have a shout-out to Richo and say good morning. Yeah, good on you. I can, I, I can just imagine you're in the phone box. It's one of those little stands. It's not actually a box, is it? No, it's just one of those little standalone. But I went for a walk this morning, and mm. I couldn't believe I actually came across two phone booths within two blocks. Well, there you go. We'll all have to go to Gunnedah and start phoning people. I think. Yeah. I, I think it's quite amazing that uh, that uh, at one stage uh, in our career here, we used to get a lot of calls from phone boxes in in uh, in early earlier times. You know, in the eighties uh, and nineties, and then. Um, Phone boxes were on their way out. They were going to get rid of them and duddly duddly dum and and now they're back. And uh, Telstra's um, proudly saying, "Look, we're getting two million calls a year from phone boxes, and and now they're free. And people are calling from phone boxes. And the same as you go to Australia Post, you can get a free postcard. Just write on it yeah. and bung it in the. So Amanda, the worm turns, yep. doesn't it? It's all. Yep. <laughs> Where are you from, Amanda? Um, from Kamira. Yeah, well, tell us all. We don't know where Kamira um, like, is. Between, halfway between Grafton and Casino. All right, okay. Yeah. We, so, my partner um, has a farm down there and we live out there in the bush and love it. Have you seen much rain on your, in your travels? Um, nowhere near. Oh, no. We only came out yesterday and heading home again today. We're just going to have breakfast with my grandsons and head home. But um, no rain, not, a, not much rain yesterday. A lot of wind, really cold and windy. Um, out of home we haven't had as much rain as even what they've had in Grafton but yeah well I always love a phone call from a a phone box Amanda and thank you very much we'll bump into you sometime in what's it called again? Kamira Kamira I'll see you in I'll see you in there's a song I'll see you in (laughs) Kamira well you have a great day Macca thanks for taking the call that's a pleasure Amanda good on you bye This is the All Over News. Nobody's been out much of late, so I was glad to get the opportunity to attend a book launch on Wednesday last week, and I thought you'd like to come along. It was the launch of Dick Smith's My Adventurous Life, and it was in the foyer of the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. There were about 100 people there, all sorts of interesting folk, mountain climbers, geologists, authors, all sorts. The backdrop? Dick's famous Bell Jet Ranger helicopter, Delta India Kilo, in which he did the first solo helicopter circumnavigation of the world. There was a lovely feeling in the room, as there always is when friends gather. Thank you, everyone, for saying such kind things. I'm standing in front of this beautiful little helicopter and I've opened the engine hatch. If you look in there, you'll see the tiny little Allison engine. Let me tell you how much I owe to that little Allison engine. This is a quote from my book covering my attempt to become the first person to fly a helicopter solo across the Atlantic. Hour after hour I flew over a freezing and now terrifyingly rough ocean scattered with icebergs. It sure looked cold down there. And as the weather went from bad to shocking, I found myself winding my way around snow showers in dangerously low visibility. At one stage, I decided to go back to Greenland. But when I turned, it was obvious that the bad weather had closed in behind me. I was becoming frightened with a sick feeling in the stomach. 
I shouldn't be here, I thought. If my engine failed, I would have less than 60 seconds to give a mayday call as I auto-rotated and hit the water. I'd then have about 30 seconds to grab the life raft, scramble out the door, inflate the raft and climb into it as the helicopter sank beneath me. Hopefully my survival suit would protect me from the cold until help arrived. Every move would have to be precise and quick. Even a slight delay would send me down with the helicopter. I found flying alone across the Atlantic in a single engine aircraft to be a profoundly disturbing experience. There's an overwhelming feeling of loneliness brought on by such an immense wilderness of water. And I knew I was unlikely to live if I came down. I was scared most of the time. My life really depended on the reliability of that single little engine, which you can hold in one hand. It's 400 horsepower, like a plumber's blow lamp with a couple of fans attached to it. The last time that little Allison engine was operating was when I flew the helicopter from my home at Terry Hills into the car park here at the museum 31 years ago. I'd like to thank everyone who assisted me with this book. Simon Nash, most importantly, Howard Whalen, also Will Pringle, Rebecca Kayser, Richard Walsh, Debbie McGuinness, and the Aussie-owned Allen and Unwin Publishers. Amazing, now there's an endangered species, an Australian-owned business. Amazingly enough, the book was also printed in Australia. Quite fantastic. I'd also like to thank everyone involved here at the Powerhouse Museum for all the wonderful work you've done, especially in getting the helicopter down from the roof. Very importantly, I thank my wife Pip, who was not only brave enough to allow me to go on my solo flight, but also flew with me on many of my other risky flights, including the first west to east helicopter circumnavigation. Pip, I couldn't have done without you and I love you very much. Thank you. In my book, I mention the huge differences in wealth we now have in Australia. We now have over 100 billionaires and Australia's wealthiest 1% own more than the bottom 70% of the population. That's 17 million Aussies. We have over 5 million Australians who live pay packet to pay packet with no savings at all. We need to do something about this. In the past, I've suggested that the wealthiest 1% pay 15% more tax and that's shared amongst the poorest 70%. As I mentioned in my book, I'm yet to get one politician from a major political party to support such a call. I also canvassed in the book that a society which is built on exponential increase in consumption of finite resources is simply not sustainable. Surely that's just common sense. But let me tell you about my shipboard landing. I want you to imagine that you're jammed in the helicopter with me as we're heading northeast from Japan in pitch darkness. Yes, it's a tiny chopper and when I planned to fly around the world, the reason no one had ever attempted that is you couldn't get across the Pacific Ocean without landing in Russia. And Russia was part of the Cold War and you couldn't get approval. So I left Fort Worth where they make the helicopter and flew it across the Northern Atlantic to London, then down to Sydney. All the time I was writing and then when I got back here, I went and saw the Russian embassy and tried to convince them to let me just do one landing north of Japan so I could complete my flight. But they wouldn't agree. Up my sleeve, I had this outrageous idea that if I couldn't get approval from Russia, I would land on a ship halfway between Japan and Alaska. I never thought I'd actually have to do that. But with the constant refusal of the Soviet Union, I wrote to 200 shipping companies and said, I'm an Aussie trying to fly a helicopter solo around the world. <laughs> And I need to get a ship that's somewhere between Japan and Alaska on the 25th of June, the longest day of the year, 1983. Would I be able to put a few drums of fuel on the corner of your deck and I could come in out of the air, land, pump my fuel in and head on? And of course, 198 of the 200 shipping companies I contacted threw it in the bin. One wrote back and said, is this a joke or is it genuine? And the last company, the Hogue Marlin, said, we'll do it. We love your spirit of adventure. And so here we are, I'm in my little helicopter, I've left Japan at 3am in the morning, heading towards the ship, which is halfway between Japan and Alaska. The distance is further than from Sydney to Auckland. I'm communicating with the ship, my ham radio friend on board, and when I'm about three hours out of Japan, he calls up and he says, Dick, uh, there's a slight problem, and I can hear it in his voice. 
we've run into fog, you won't be able to land. And at that stage, I was past my point of no return. I couldn't get back to Japan, I would run out of fuel. I looked across and over in the Soviet airspace, I could see the tip of a volcano sticking out and I thought, I'll head for that. And so I turned and started to head towards the Soviet airspace. On my map it said, note, aircraft flying on the non-free flying area will be shot upon without notification. I called a high-flying airline and I said, look, I'm a helicopter trying to fly to a ship, but the ship's in fog. Can you call the Australian authorities and say I'm heading to Russia? I'm going to land somewhere at the end of the Kamchatka Peninsula. They had to get the message about three times before they realised I was dead serious. Fortunately, the ship then called back and said, Dick, we're slowing down. We're in an area where the fog's lifted. We think you'd probably be able to get in. So I had to make my decision. Do I turn left and head towards the volcano and I'm sure to be alive even though they'd probably confiscate my helicopter? Or do I head for the ship? It took me about one second to decide. Below me was eight-eighths of cloud. I only had a visual helicopter. I wasn't supposed to fly into cloud. But I knew that this was whether I would complete my trip around the world or not, or whether I'd fail. Because if I went to Russia, I wouldn't have been able to complete the flight. So I descended down through the cloud, watching my altimeter, and I thought, if I end up below about 200 feet and I can't see anything, I've had it. I'll be in the drink. At about 1,000 feet, I came out of the cloud, and about 20 minutes later, I saw a little dot ahead of me. I couldn't believe it, because these were the days before GPS, and uh, navigation was really difficult. I had a thing called an Amiga system which used to go faulty all the time so I couldn't trust it. But I'd built up a beacon, a non-directional beacon that my friend who I'd left on the ship or put on the ship in Yokohama had turned on. He'd strung the aerial across a crane and I managed to get a slight reading on my automatic direction finder which is in this little helicopter here. As I got closer I realised it was the ship, it was the Hogue Marlin and I managed to do my first ever landing on a ship. I'd allowed one hour on the ship to refuel and then another seven hours to get to Alaska and that would get me in just before last light. Unfortunately, the ship was rolling and it took two hours to refuel. And I remember taking off from the ship and Don Richards, my man on the ship, said, Dick, this is Tommy later, did you realise the helicopter was 20% overgrowth? If you look at the chopper, you'll see there's a big tank in the back and there's an extra tank on top. That tank extra one was made for the shipboard landing. I managed to get airborne from the ship and seven hours later I was on the ground at Shemir, an American Air Force base at the very end of the Aleutian chain and that allowed me to complete my trip. Thank you for listening to me. And Singo was going to come and launch my book but he's still halfway between Hawaii and Australia so I hereby launch my book, My Adventurous Life. Thank you. G'day, this is Macca. Good morning, Mac. It's Tony. I'm between Burner and Ipswich. And yeah. last night I had to go to the Burner Hospital. Mm. And while I was there, I heard a discussion between a couple of nurses that said, we've lost seven because they won't have the jab and they've been put off. And I just wondered how widespread it is in Queensland. I know a couple of others that have refused to have the jab on principle of being ordered to do it rather than uh, objection to doing it. Yeah, well, I th- I think that's probably uh, there was a was it fifty four thousand that haven't had their second jab? I think in New South Wales, I read in the paper yesterday, and and I think the same thing with teachers in New South Wales. I mean, Tony, some people just don't want to get it. What can you do? I don't know. You, what can you do? You can't if that's their decision. It's their decision. But at, you know, nurses and teachers, just some of the most important people in the and underpaid, some of the most important people in the in the world, really. Yeah, you're right. And the the next problem is your man said truck drivers are short. Well, I lost four in the last couple of weeks because they couldn't come back into Queensland. They all live down south. They couldn't come back into Queensland unless they had the jab. So they've voted with their feet and said, we're not coming. So I'm down four. So what do you uh, deliver, or Tony? What business do you work in? Thank you, so, ma'am. Uh, farm equipment and earth moving equipment. Yep. And it's just, there are all sorts of factors that affect who comes to work that we've got no control over. And unfortunately, all the old old, old guys are getting older and I don't know who's going to replace them because the young ones don't want to work. 
No, well, it's, I don't know what the – someone will come up with a solution because the good thing about – there's a lot of bad things about people, but the good thing about people is they're very innovative and they can get things done and, and people, you know, can work their way around. I don't know what you do if people don't want to get – that's their prerogative if they don't want to get jabbed. But, gee, it's, it's in those occupations that are most important. Nurses – I think nurses are just about the most important. I mean, doctors are fine, but nurses do the – they do the on-ground work, really, don't they? Just like truck drivers and teachers, exactly the same. I was just thinking the other day, what a t- I was looking back at, you know, my school career. Teachers, there's a job that you just got to, you know, for a lot of teachers, they put in over and above. Some of them don't, but a lot of them do. You know, they can teach their subject, but they do other things. They go beyond what they're supposed to do and they do other things. And they're in such important jobs. And I think people are only... You know, in the last 20 years, because of what's happened, I think people are realising just what an important job they do, Tony. But I don't know. how. What do you? So what do you do? What's your, you're an innovative bloke. What are you going to do to get your truck drivers back? Well, <clears throat> wait until the 17th and see if they can exercise what they've threatened. I don't think they'll be able to. They're saying, you know, all sorts of restrictions come the 17th of December. Uh I don't think they'll be able to do it, and I think the house of cards will fall down. It, I may be completely wrong, but I think that's what's going to happen. There's too many people objecting. Australians don't like being told what to do. They're a stubborn bunch of people, yeah. and you know they've wandered off the countless wars um, to help other people. You know they're pretty bloody stupid and pig-headed in a lot of ways, <laughs> but I'm proud to be one of them. I've got to tell you. <laughs> so why were you in hospital, Tony? Oh, no, it wasn't for me. I was doing the taxi driving job and a young bloke came in with a broken nose and another man came in with a cut hand while I was there, but I was just the taxi driver. Dear, oh dear. Yeah, oh, to be young again, Tony. (laughs) Yeah, well, we're about 50 years too late for that. (laughs) Well, Thanks, Macca. Keep keep doing your program. It's wonderful. I enjoy it. When I drove home from Melbourne, the last time I was allowed to drive back was the 16th of last month, and I got home before the 16th, and uh, it was wet from Mel from Melbourne to Dubbo. There was water line everywhere, and it's still the same by the sounds of it. And it's such a glorious season everywhere. And good luck to the farmers. I hope they can get it off. Good on you, Tony. Great to talk to you, mate. Thank you. Keep your program up at the Ripper. Thanks, mate. Hello, Macca. It's Chris here. Hi, Chris. Um, Yeah, I rang you uh, 2016. Um, Apparently, uh, last week, you um, played my uh, recording again. I I was doing the longest milk run in the world with um, my partner then. Oh, this is you, yeah. (laughs) yeah, This is me. I I love that, yeah. You were driving from... down south Harvey. of yeah, Har- yeah, Harvey up to Darwin with uh, fresh milk. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was three three groups of us. Yeah, and Bill Bill um, Barnes rang me and and said, "Macca played your thing last week. You've got to give him a ring." So, so um, yeah. I mean, so I what are you doing, you back. Christine? You were driving um, a two up, weren't you? Yeah, with um, a partner at the time. And he's now my husband, so oh, uh, we got go. married three years ago. Yeah, so we're still not arguing. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you driving but, together? Um, are you still driving together? Yeah, we changed we changed companies um, because that that company couldn't offer us any more two up. So we changed companies, and we're doing from Brisbane to Darwin now. Brisbane to Darwin, and carrying what yeah. milk still? Or uh, no, no, we do um, general and. Um, uh, refrigeration, you know, um, produce and stuff and everything. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, we're 53 and a half metres long now. We're three trailers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and Isn't it... uh, we're one of those ones that everyone hates to look at. <laughs> it's great to talk to you, yeah. Christine. Tell me this, um, shortage of truck drivers? I mean, that's what every – shortage of everybody. That's the, the, the main theme, I think, in Australia at the moment. I mean, um, and – and the price of everything's going up. Uh, inflation's on the rise in in America, and it'll happen here. And they'll have to they'll end up having to put up the interest rates. So, um, and and people are delivering stuff like you. I mean, it's almost that people stand around and cheer when the truck comes in carrying stuff. <laughs> um, Christine, what yeah. are you short? Are they short? Your company short of drivers or? 
Uh, look, every company I think is short of drivers, good drivers. Um, I think you can, you know, there are drivers around, but it depends on the company and, you know, um, we've got a good company. I don't want to name them, but yeah, you we've can name them. stumbled it's... onto, no, no, I don't want to, but um, yeah, look, they're really great to work for because they talk to you, they don't talk at you and um, yeah, they're just, they're just really great people and we've been with them for, I think, uh, nine months now mm. and um, yeah, look, it's awesome what you see out there, out back like you were talking before about the rain and and um, you know the workers and and stuff and everything trying to get you know seasonal pickers and that we were loading at um, Tyndall the other day um, mangoes and stuff and you go in there and there's all these Vanuatu people in there and I have never ever been in a shed full of sorters and you know really they're like it's not easy work it's you know hot conditions. And they're so happy and they've got their music playing and, you know, they all look up at you and they wave and, they, you know, it's such a, a beautiful environment to see, you know. And, and it's just sad that Australians don't, you know, put their uh, pride behind them and just do anything because, um, you know, out the back there, like COVID's really, really helped out back. This rain's helping now, but the caravanners and you know you know they're they're not our best friends on the road but we we don't hate them we just think well you're on holidays we're working <laughs> you know I'll, I'll pass <laughs> it on I'll space. pass it on Christine we don't hate them good I think that's no go on we don't we don't honestly it's <laughs> just beautiful to see everything so full and you know like it's empty now because it's hot up there and the wet seasons come but um yeah. I'll just re- just I'll just amazing re- I'll just read this. Uh, Pammy Cupper is one of our correspondents. She's uh, our military correspondent. But she wrote, we were talking about um, Remembrance Day on, on Thursday. And I was, uh, I remember, I just remembered at a minute past 11 and I, we stopped. We're just, we're just about to do some gardening for a half an hour. But um, she said, um, I've been thinking about your stories about how hard it is to get Australians to work. It all, always reminds me of my father in the 60s, says Pam. Every year he'd sit down at the kitchen table and compose his advertisement to send to the Adelaide papers seeking pickers for grapes, mostly this is in Sunraysia. He'd give all the details and then say to us kids, I'd like to add Australians need not apply, but I'm not allowed to. He found migrants were great workers, but Australians were work shy. Uh, But Pam adds a little writer, of course, migrants to any country, by definition, are more prepared to work. I don't know what it is. In London, you only had to open your mouth, she said, and speak Australian, I'm Australian. And you and you'd be offered a job. I suppose when you're in another country, you want to, you know, whether you're, a, a, you know, a, a gap year kid and you want to work in a bar in London or something like that, um, or if you're glad for a job. I suppose I don't know. Maybe we've had it too easy. I'm not saying we've got it too easy because people Australians are generally good workers. So Christine, as you know, like you and yeah. I, th- I yeah. hope like me, but um, I suppose um, it's at a time when you know. Things are in demand. We've just come through a pandemic. The world's come through a pandemic. There's shortages of everything. We've had a good season. So it'll probably work itself out, Christine. And um, and that I think that idea about, you know, if people are, you know, on a, a welfare or something and they want to go picking, they can keep their welfare. I think, you know, when you look at people, you know, earning million, two million, three million dollars a year uh, as, you know, executives, um, and then yeah. you know, we don't need executives like we need people to pick your fruit and, and harvest your crop. I mean, we, yeah. we don't have a perspective, really, do we? No, no, exactly. But, you know, I think everybody wants to be at the top before they start at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. <laughs> All right. Well, well Christine... that's where I wanted to be, but, yeah, yeah just start at the, top. <laughs> the middle of the road's good. But, you know, like I remember my teacher saying to me years ago, you know, I was staring out the window. I hated school. I didn't want to go to school. He said, you'll never make money staring out a window. And I drive along in the truck and go, wow, Mr. McInerney, look at me now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're just looking out a window and, and your view changes every every town, every, you know, you just it's just beautiful, really. So, um, you know, the, uh, the jobs are out there and, you know, we just need people to, you know, just think about. Just being, you know, doing something different. Uh, 
Christine, thanks very much for ringing us back. Oh, that's why I really play uh, little grabs from some years back because I want to know what you're doing. And, and yeah. it's really nice to talk to you, Christine. We'll bump in here sometime. Yeah, can I just say a quick hello to my mum that oh, I haven't oh. seen for two years because she's in Victoria and we can't see her from Queensland. So, you know, hi, mum. Love you lots. For a minute, <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I thought you were going to say, can I just say hello to all the caravanners? I really do love them. Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them. <laughs> see you, Christine. <laughs> Bye-bye. Good on you. Talk to you again. Bye. Bye. Yeah. There you go, I'm at uh, Craig here, sitting out at Cossack on the river here, uh, nine case uh, southwest of uh, Catherine. Wow, what a place to be, Craig. What are you doing at Cossack? That's, yeah, I wish I was there. What's it like there this morning? Oh, bloody beautiful, mate. Hmm? And what are you doing? You're travelling yeah. or working or what are you doing? Yeah, we travel, we work, we work in Catherine, the uh, missus of nurse, and uh, I do a bit of concrete cutting and concreting. Yeah, lovely out here this morning. Birdie conductors wandering around everywhere. Lovely. <laughs> so, Craig, where are you from and how long have you been on the road? Uh, I've been on the road since November last year. Mm. Yeah, out of Melbourne originally. Originally out of uh, Werribee originally. But, yeah, we just travel around and uh, go from place to place where they need a nurse and I get whatever job I can do on the way, eh? Well, gee, that... That sounds like a wonderful thing to do because you know, nurses are wanted everywhere, as 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 you know. There's there's people talking. Oh, they're about... screaming for nurses out here. They can't keep them here in Catherine. No, they can't keep uh, them anywhere, and, and some of them uh, apparently are refusing to get vaccinated, so um, they leave yeah. rather than do that. So you know, we need all the nurses you can get. We need everybody we can get, uh, Craig. But um, and you're working too, and and people are always looking for people who can do something. So you obviously sound like a handyman. So um, yeah, a bit of a handyman. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to that lady talk about the uh, Van Halen's area at uh, Manblue Homestead. Uh, lovely people they are. They're working on the mango farms out here. We're down to six. We come from '85. There was '85 probably a month and a half ago. Half have gone to Queensland and. A few have gone over to uh, somewhere else. I'm not sure where they went to, but we're down to six left now. This Bloody lovely people. From Vanuatu, are they? Or? Yeah, Vanuatu mob, yeah. There you yep. go. Well, see, it wouldn't get done without them, mate. No, no, without them, I don't think anything to get done out here. Screaming for workers out here, just can't get them. No, on the road, and I suppose when when it all opens up, I'm you know I can remember being on the road you know five years ago or eight years ago through Western Australia, and you know the road houses were packed and people were there, but gee, I don't know where they get uh, people from now when people stop. Well, I mean, not not so many in summer. People tend not to go up north in summer because it's a bit hot. But um, uh, winter. Oh, the wet season. The wet season's here now. We've got a, had a bit of rain. We had a couple of big storms. Had a mini cyclone come through the back of Mambala Homestead there uh, probably a couple of weeks ago, eh? Yeah. Knocked things over, left, right and centre. All the old mahogany trees went down. Knocked it, lost a couple of cars and bits and pieces like that. But, yeah, had a bit of rain, so it's been quite good. Everything's turned green again now, Macca. Bloody beautiful out here, <laughs> sitting down on the river. Yeah, well... You should get out of here, mate. Yeah, I know. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. We'll, we'll do it, Craig, and uh, we'll bump it. So where are you heading for now? Are you staying around uh, for a while? Or? No, no, we're here, we're here till March. We're here till March. And then we'll uh, wander off down West Australia side and see if we can find a job for a nurse. <laughs> oh, that won't be hard, mate. That won't be hard. No, nah, that's not hard, no. No, oh. uh, plenty going on here. Sitting down in the Pandanus. The creek's changed colour. The Catherine River's turned a bit darker now, not clear as it was. Because mm-hmm. a bit and of water around. The gum What's that, Macca? Because uh, there's a bit of rain around, I suppose. Yeah, well, yeah, the, yeah, the gorge is starting to fill up now. And, yeah, there's a couple of crocodiles down here. Probably just up from the rock hole. We've got a three-metre salty. Just up the track here a bit, eh? Well, he wanders uh, up here every now and again and... What's what's the, is that the Catherine River, not Catherine Gorge? Catherine River, well, it is part of the gorge. It's probably uh, 25, 30 k's from here. Well, there's always Where supposed to the be. Rock? There was always not supposed to be uh, salties in the uh, in the 
in the well, that's not true. in the gorge it was always supposed to be the oh no well, that's true yeah you're right you're right there Macca but uh, yeah no there is still salties down here there's one probably about 500 metres from me he's probably watching you uh, Craig so I'd be... oh no he don't he won't be watching me Macca <laughs> you never know Craig all right mate well nice to talk to you nice to know uh, you what... too Macca great show eh thank you thank you very much I'm glad you enjoyed it what's the wife's name uh, Natalie, and Natalie, where? Yeah, she's South. She's South African over here working. So yeah. And she's working what the local hospital or something, is she? Or yeah, Roger that, Macca. Yeah. All right, Craig. Good on you, mate. Just continue sitting by the. Uh, ah, bloody beautiful, mate. <laughs> Tell them to get out here and have a look. Oh, they will. They will. They'd love to, mate. They'd love to. I'm, I'm yeah, they're all departed now. We've no more tourists here now. It's all local. Well, so-called locals. Yeah. All right, good on you. Thanks, Craig. Cheers, mate. All the best. Have a good one, Maga. See you, mate. I'll tell you why I live where I live. This Australia Day, says John Farrington, or is it Fannington? Fannington, I think it is. Yeah, Fannington. Says, uh, I'll be camping at Salt Creek, a place not big enough to be called a town at the southern end of the Coorong. Consult your maps. I first went here in 1973 and have been back many times since, including canoeing from Goolwa. Again, consult your maps. Over the years, I've camped all over Oz, from Matty's Back Paddock and Corn to Kalyamurra Waterhole on the Cooper to Limon National Park to the Bungles and so on. But for my last effort, I'm back to Salt Creek with my canoe. Hopefully, I'll be able to camp where my two mates and I had many great campfires. I had another connection with the place through work. I was a traveller and would go to the southeast of South Australia five times a year, finishing at Millicent. On one early trip, I didn't leave Millicent until about 8pm, low on petrol, and decided to fill up at Kingston, 105 k's on. But the petrol station was closed and the RAA didn't answer their phone, so I had to decide either to stay in Kingston or try and reach Salt Creek, 83 k's away then sleep in the car, fill up as soon as the petrol station opened and head back with an early start. With a certain apprehension, I drove on. I made it, and to my amazement, when I crested the rise before Salt Creek, I saw the lights of the Ampol service station. The owner, a young bloke, Brenton, had just taken over and decided to stay up until 10 to see what would happen. <laughs> so every time I drove up and down the Coorong, I would stop for a top-up or a refreshment and got to know Brenton, his wife and the children as they came along, and I have memories of chatting in the kitchen and watching the girls as they grew up. But he was ambitious and he moved to Meningi, 60 k's north, and bought or managed a supermarket there. Salt Creek has never been the same since, but the camping and surrounding area are more or less unchanged. So I'll be listening to you on Sunday with bacon and eggs and toast. Many thanks, says John Fenno, Fannington. Good on you, Fenno. That's lovely. Wouldn't you like to be there? I'd love to be there. And from Premadina on the Tasman Peninsula, Steve writes. Steve Kemp says, uh, Good morning from Premadina on the Tasman. This is where I live. I face due east and am greeted every morning by magnificent sunrises. These colours are true. The water in front of my house turns the colour of the sky and I feel I live between heaven and Eden. Every morning a pair of sea eagles will air glide past my windows, almost hovering on the breeze an echidna the size of a soccer ball shuffles and snuffles its ant-grazing way near my woodpile and the magpies gather on my deck hoping for a post-breaking morsel. I'm overrun by promiscuous blue wrens chasing the dun-coloured females and the welcome swallows are constantly zooming and swooping at perilous speed across the grass snatching unfortunate insects for breakfast. This is where I live and it's paradise, Premadina. I meant to read this letter last year, but the rain hadn't arrived in Mackay and I thought, well, it's a bit premature, but you get the drift. It's from Kelly Kelly and Lucy. Kelly and Lucy have signed it, and I forgot to read this. Anyway, we thought we'd drop you a note for no particular reason except to say good day and thanks for the program. Up here in Mackay, the wet season is coming. I think it's already there. You can feel it in the air even though we've had no real rain yet. The temperature is rising and storm clouds are beginning to build up, but we don't want any here for yet another month or so. 
until the canes all cut and the cockies can relax. See, this was just the end of the cane season, which sort of finishes end of November. Rain now would just bog the harvesters and delay the crushing, and that would be a disaster. Some of the contractors are starting work at 3 o'clock in the morning, as it is, to be sure of getting their quota of bins for the day cut. The mozzies are out in force, and if your house isn't screened, you're sleeping under the net. They're the little black buggers with a bite like a barracuda, and I bet you know the ones we mean. The blankets have all been packed away, of course, and we're back to sleeping on the sheet and crawling under it only at the last couple of hours before dawn. The pale-headed rosellas still come for a feed every morning and they generally have a quick bath in the bird bath under the bottle brush tree. When the two of them decide to get in together, it's hilarious. They back in very gently, dip their heads and give a very gentle flap or two of the wings. Then the rhythm quickens. Flap, 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 flap. And pretty soon there's water going everywhere and a thousand droplets sparkling in the morning sun like the proverbial diamonds. You've seen that, haven't you, when birds get in the bird bath? Our little mates, the mannequin finches, seem to be packing their bags and getting ready for their annual migration back to China. They arrive here about May and are all gone by Christmas. At the height of the season, I reckon we're feeding two or three hundred of them. But who cares? They're lovely to have around. The sunbirds have raised their usual two pairs of babies in their cobweb and grass woven nest, suspended in the carport, but no doubt they'll be back again next season. Even Bianca the budgie is sitting on a clutch of eggs. It must be something they put in the water. Cheers, mate, from Kelly and Lucy. And this arrived some time ago with a photo. photo of a little country town and some hills and mist hanging around the hills. And Jean Tyes said, encloses a photo of mist resting on the hills, in inverted commas, of Murrurundi. That's a much nicer definition than where the mist sits. And on the back of the photo she's written this. It's a photo showing you the mist resting on the hills of Murrurundi, which is the latest definition. Previously, over the years, Murrurundi was defined as a nest in the hills, water running over stones, the big camping ground, and the five fingers. So take your pick, as they are all applicable. But in my opinion, mist resting on the hills is the nicest and much easier to say than where the mist sits. However you describe it, it's a delightful spot. It is a nice spot if you'd like to write to why I live where I live. Post Office Box 994 Sydney 2001 or you can email us and that's why I live where I live for this week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.